Hello, this is Jason Bryden, and welcome to the Bold Acting Podcast for Monday, February 12th, 2024. On this episode, I read to you the first half of Isaac Butler's The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. This is a very long book, so I had to break, up, break it up into two parts. And what I've done is taken copious notes on what I think are the important takeaways so that you don't have to read the whole thing. This uh, third stream in my uh, podcast, in my bold, act, bold acting podcast endeavor, may be short-lived because there's a lot of reading. The only thing more difficult than doing this is getting guests. So as long as everything remains equally difficult, I guess I'll have a hard time knowing which one to quit. That's what I'm always looking for. Where can I quit? Where can I just go back to writing by myself and reading books and not having to uh, find an audience, not having to shine, shine light on the things I create? Real artists ship, however, don't they? You can just keep making stuff all by yourself in your bedroom. That's what I want to do. But if no one sees it, what's the point? Before we get into Isaac Butler's book, I want to dip into the uh, listener mailbag. Normally, I get, uh, you know, a thumbs up or a I like that one on the boldacting.substack.com page. Sometimes I'll get uh, feedback from my dad, like, I don't like all the swearing, or you made a grammatical error here. Sometimes I'll get words of encouragement. Uh, Today is not one of those days. I got an amazing email from a Michelle. If you read my last newsletter, uh, where I take great advice from the late great investor Charlie Munger from Berkshire Hathaway, one of the things one of the things he says is to don't multitask, concentrate. And I uh, added on my own thoughts there to that one because I think it's an important one. And then I mistakenly found correlation between ADHD, the rise of us talking about ADHD, and the rise of us, uh, the rise of the smartphone. And I linked the two together. And that was a mistake. I didn't actually do any research uh, into that. And this uh, listener or former listener um, took great umbrage with it. Subject line, ADHD has been around for over a century. You cunt. That's how it started. Uh, the message continues on. I signed up for your newsletter because Instagram put your content in my feed, which is disappointing to me because that means I have to still stay on Instagram because it actually kind of works. As an actor, Michelle says, I've been hungry for something different and unapologetically bullshit free. That's me. That's how I would describe myself, hopefully. But Michelle says, uh, but that's not you. You're just another privileged white dude who interviews other privileged white dudes and then there's your newsletter. Just want to point out that this is one of the best written emails I've ever ri- read. They know how to use an ellipsis. There aren't any spelling mistakes. The hyphens are in the right place. The phone has made us so bad at writing. This person, wrote, it's a thing of beauty, even though she dislikes me very, very much. I, I really appreciated this email, and I told her that when I wrote back. I grew up in a time before smartphones, tablets, and computers in classroom. 
Uh, she grew up in the late 90s. Um, she had ADHD but wasn't diagnosed. Instead, she was called stupid, retarded, lazy, and worthless by teachers just like you. It had nothing to do with multitasking. When I was 16 and again at 19, I tried to commit suicide because I started to believe I was retarded and stupid and worthless. And who wants to live that way? She goes on to say, you don't do the research. You're probably a conspiracy theorist, anti-vaxxer, and climate change denier. It would be on brand. Uh, I, would, I would love it if people like you didn't have the social media reach that you do. Your kind has always existed. Uh, you were confined to ranting in your parents' basements, but now you have the internet. You don't realize the impact your words have, but you need to know the bullshit you say is just as impactful as the acting advice you claim to give in your classrooms. A 30-second Google Scholar search will turn up references to ADHD in peer-reviewed medical literature dating back to the early 1900s, and some cases describe similar conditions from the 1700s. Educate yourself, then she includes a couple links, and then she says, and then go fuck off. Great email. You, don't, you of course, don't want... Um, just hate mail all the time, but when 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 it's so well written, and when it's you can't deny that was a good punch to the gut, and I deserved it. So I wrote her back, and I said, and I apologized for linking the phone in the ADHD. I didn't do any research; I just said it. It was just anecdotal, and uh, I didn't think such a big deal. Obviously, I was wrong about that. I did clear up with her. I also said I appreciated be calling a cunt. I miss that word. Um, I don't get to use it much anymore, rightfully so. But, you know, when, you know, I got to match her tone, I thought. Um, sidebar, I'm going to London in May, and I've warned all them that I'm going to come in hot with that word. Can't wait to use it again. So excited. Uh, I did wanted to clear up that I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't trust uh, the government 100% of the time, certainly not the kleptocracy that we are living under here in Ford Nation. Uh, I am not a climate change denier. In fact, I would, I would gently suggest that we stop calling it climate change. That was a term uh, uh, created by Ogilvy and Mather when they were retained by British Petroleum. Uh, or Shell, maybe it was Shell, um, when they realized climate change was a real thing. They wanted to, 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 to mitigate it. It just climates change. But the Guardian a few years ago decided to call it global heating because that's what it's really called. So that's what, I, that's what I call it, global heating. And, of course, I believe in it 100% of the time. What were some other charges? An anti-vaxxer, I've got all my shots. Uh, I vote conservative. No, I've never voted conservative. I've never voted liberal in my life. I voted NDP 100% of the time. I became a man in East Van. I had Libby Davies there for, you know, there was no reason not to vote liberal. And now I, I, I live in uh, Moritz Stiles country. I mean, there's just one great example of an excellent NDP leader after another. I did try the Greens uh, twice, once provincially, once federally, because uh, Mike Schreiner. He's such an amazing man, and I wish he would switch over to the liberals because he could do more good from the inside. Anyways, I'm getting off track. I also really love the Greens platform, and I wish the NDP would borrow from that or the liberals or anyone because if we don't save the environment, and all these other problems will just disappear because we'll be on fire, and we are. Anyway, 
so I did dispel some of those uh, gross generalizations she made of me, and I sent the email off, but it bounced back. So if, Michelle, you are listening, which I know you're probably not, you didn't want to have a dialogue with me, you just wanted me to be wrong, fair enough, um, um, thank you. Thank you for that. That was a really good email. It stung for sure, but I deserved it. And, um, and I would love for you to come and check out my class. And I don't know how to get to you. It's, uh, you'll find in my class a lot of encouragement. And it's not baseless cheerleading. That's not what I do. I'm not a positive thinker. I'm a person that thinks we need more artists not less, in times of duress. I'm a person who thinks we didn't get into this mess because we were too focused on the art. I'm a person who creates an environment in class that is so varied, so diverse, so inclusive, uh, that I am often the minority. I am often sitting there listening and learning. Virtue signal alert. I mean, I just finished a, um, a workshop on the weekend with 50 actors with disabilities from across the country. And, uh, and if people knew how much I got from class, it's just incredible. When was the last time you went back to school? When was the last time you were in any kind of class? A learning curve, a steep one, is thrilling. If you're not feeling that right now, you may be in a plateau. And we can get complacent in plateaus. God knows I know that better than most. Uh, and then you, you get into a class again. You're like, holy shit, this is so good. Why aren't I doing this all the time? So anyways, there's a community waiting for you, Michelle, in bold acting classes. And they are creative and they are loving and they are a bunch of weirdos and they want to work with you. Okay, on to if, oh, if you want to email me. Um, with nice words or not so nice words, uh, do so at jasonbryden at gmail.com. That'll come right to my inbox. Uh, or you can use a form online on my website if you don't want me to know your actual email address. Go to boldacting.com slash contact. Let's talk about The Method by Isaac Butler, How the 20th Century Learned to Act, Part 1. This book is the history of the method system of acting, founded by Konstantin Stanislavski, um, officially, but of course it was with the help of many others, as is usually the case with these things. I'm not going to go on a list of all the Russian names that I'm going to butcher. You get the picture. Some context. Everything was happening around the turn of the 20th century in Russia. Uh, Tsar Nicholas was out of control, russifying the country against such outside forces as the influence of Poland. They were fighting something called Polonization back then, where there was too much Poland. Then there was the October Manifesto, which was Russia's first constitution, uh, the failure of the Russo-Japanese War. Russia failed big. The Tsar blew it in that one. There were pogroms, so of course he was still exterminating Jews. We, you know, that seems to be a historical through line. Strikes, mutinies, and the narrow survival of the Russian monarchy during what was known as the First Russian Revolution in 1905. 
We always learn about the Russian Revolution in 1917, but of course these things don't happen in a vacuum or automatically or instantly. There's always littler explosions, littler, smaller explosions leading up to the main event. Does this not sound familiar to you? The, the, the orange emperor ascending to the White House. January 6th, the orange emperor trying again in spite of the 91 charges across four indictments that he's fighting, not to mention the 20-plus sex miscon- sexual misconduct accusations. If this ain't a sign, I don't know what is. What is going to happen is, is that it's not going to be as good as it was. Democracy is taking some real punches to the gut. I mention this not for just for historical interest, but because this is where the art happens. You'll notice that the method came out of all this tumult. Art happens when there's ad- ad- adverse conditions. Art doesn't happen as readily when everything's going well. The status quo doesn't feed us. It's not the fuel we're looking for. It's way nicer. It's way less stressful, for sure, when everybody's getting a taste. But that's not the way human nature works. That's not the way greed works or capitalism was ever set up to even uh, the monarchy in Russia. It was just greed and incompetence at the top that led to civic, geopolitical, and military uh, turmoil, which leads to amazing art. We need more artists, not less, in times of duress. The book starts off with a message from the 1980s. Frances McDormand found that working in her first lead role out of theater school, in her first film, Blood Simple, that she couldn't consistently lose her shit, take after take, without destroying herself by the end of the day. She needed a system. Now, if I may quickly sidebar, it doesn't have to be someone else's, okay? It, it, it goes back to the reverence, like we have to learn. We, ha- we can be autodidacts about this. It can be the thing that works for you. So here's my system when you have to lose your shit, just as an example. Act like that is actually happening to you, and then ask for a tear stick. They're 22 bucks on Amazon. It's a mentholated plastic stick that you stick in your eye, and you'll start tearing up. Now add in some hysteria. That's one type of acting. You, whether you're feeling it or not has less to do with how you're serving the audience, not the lines, not the writer. Your audience is paying your bills. Your audience is paying their ticket price. That's who you have to answer to, not an acting teacher, not a system, not a guru, not a director or a writer. You have two bosses, your scene partner and the audience. Serve them and do it in a way that doesn't ruin you. No one can tell uh, when someone's crying on screen who's engaged with their scene partner whether or not they have glycerin drops plopped into their eyes by the makeup person right before the camera starts rolling. No one can tell, because it's acting. Okay, more on my hypocrisy later. It'll show dogma is dogma. Any system or method that promises to be the only way conflates strong opinion 
I have plenty of that, with fact. Run from teachers that say their way is the only way. It can't be. That's impossible. It always has been impossible. Anyone can call themselves an acting teacher. Exhibit A, me. The the loud voice in your ears right now. I just started doing it. In the late 1800s, Eleonora Duza was the greatest actor of all time, according to Stanislavski and many others. She paused where no one else paused. She turned her back to the audience. Her unconventional line readings where she would suddenly go sotto voce to make the audience lean in surprised her scene partners and the audiences. Her moves were always motivated by the truth, but she surprised people. And how do I know that she was the greatest? I mean, how do you believe that? And why does it resonate today? Well, no one peddling bullshit would ever be confused with the greatest living actor. The truth is still a valuable commodity. What we know of as the method, Stanislavski called the system. And it's basically how to bring lived experience into performance rather than just the presentational. By moving the focus of acting from types of people, like archetypes, to specific to an individuality, acting moved from what uh, what was meant when one said they're a good actor to what it meant to be a human being. Stanislavski learned to act by copying professional actors of Russian theater. He was copying. Picasso said good artists copy and great artists steal. And Steve Jobs said real artists ship. The through line here that is so helpful is how do actors deliver consistency, no matter the material, in service to their audience? You're not an artist unless you put it out there in the light of day. How do you do it in a generous way that speaks to people, one or many? Stanislavski goes on to talk about crawling into the skin of a character. Instead of theatrical convention, he encouraged his actors to research the character and analyze the text. They were responding to an ancient and obsolete way of obsolete way of doing things. And as we'll see, at the very same time of massive geopolitical turmoil, Stanislavski said, I am raging a fierce struggle against routine. Acting had become stale. A departure against tradition. That is the only way to save art. There is a truism for sure if I have ever heard one. The the thing that everybody is doing, you should be allergic to. You should be suspicious of. And so he came from this, this one school of art, this one way we acted. It was the way we have done it for hundreds of years. And he was the first, or him and his compatriots were the first to go, this is bullshit. There's got to be a better way. Uh, This goes back to what I was saying. Art is always under attack. Because in a capitalist society, things that are inured to the bottom line or anathema to the predominant forces in play will always be threatening to the decision makers. So what if art is underfunded? That's expected. So what if people aren't paying attention to your one-person show at the fringe? That, That shouldn't be a surprise. You just haven't made it undeniably great yet. Or your expectations are too high. 
let me explain that a little bit. To make something undeniably great may take you a lifetime, but that's the goal. You can't blame an audience for not liking your stuff just because, I don't know, the Canucks game is on. You just got to make it better than organized sport, and that takes time. Or your expectations are too high. Why do you think the world owes you anything? Why are you making stuff in the first place? Is it for fame and fortune, or is it because you are compelled? And, uh, uh, this reminds me of something that my a university, a theater school teacher, uh, acting teacher, Pamela, um, Pamela Brooks, said. She said, don't have a goat. If you don't have a goat, they can't get it. Which I, I think is short term for short is a shortcut for just lower your expectations of people. Keep your standard, your personal standards high. You're a responsible actor that shows up on time with their lines memorized and you're and you're making stuff and you're out on a limb taking risks in public. But as far as everybody else, low expectations. That way you're not so easily disappointed in humanity. One of Stanislavski's nicknames among his friends was the Big Infant due to his childlike fascination with the world. This curiosity can be found in all actors worth their salt, an empathic desire to see how other people live. To alchemize this grist into a performance communicating our commonality, our stories, and our uniqueness. As Stanislavski was developing his theories, he and his cohort believed in order to save art, everything must change. Change is art. Change is what artists look for and look forward to. We embrace changes in technology, obstacle, and adversity because we know that that is where art comes from. Art does not flourish in the status quo. At Stanislavski's Moscow Arts Theater, these changes also meant how they went about getting audiences. They lowered their ticket prices. They did special performances for workers. And there was a sliding scale ticket prices also. And this was like 130 years ago. It's funny how some things never change. The system meant the actors exposed their very soul stripped bare. It was their loves, their struggles, their desires put on display. Here's some guiding principles formulated in 1905 Moscow. One, one must love art, not himself in art. This goes back to what we were talking about, about why we got into this in the first place. Fame or fortune, or because we just love to perform, because we want to connect with people in that way. Two, today Hamlet Tomorrow, the third spear chucker from the left. Both are artists. Three, the poet, the actor, the stage manager work towards one goal, the truth. They're all equal. Four, all disobedience to the creative life is a crime. That's a good one. All disobedience to the creative life, if you are called to this life, is a crime. If you ignore it, you're committing a crime to yourself and to others. Five, lateness, laziness, caprice, hysterics, ignorance of the role are all equally harmful to enterprise and must be rooted out. Caprice, what does that mean? Look up, I've heard it a ton. I've never understood a sudden and unaccountable change of mood or behavior. Oh, my 11-year-old. Um, lateness, laziness, caprice, 
spazziness, that's me too, actually. Hysterics, me too. Ignorance of the role, me too. Lazy, that uh, all are equally harmful to enterprise and must be rooted out. That describes me to a T. <laughs> I got some work to do. Number six, there are no small parts, only small actors. That's where that came from. Fun. God, that's some good stuff, hey? It's amazing what you can learn from reading really old books. Go back to the fundamentals, like Larry Bird did. You know, he was always practicing his uh, free throws. Oh, he never stopped. He had got so many rings, still practicing the three throws, free throws. No one wanted to fund Stanislavski's new theater co. at first either. They failed to get their first choice of theater. They were undercapitalized. Their government grant application was lost. They had three different groups of actors with different styles of performance. An uphill climb. They never quit. They kept going. Adversity is, goes hand in hand with art. Not only does the artist benefit from acquainting themselves with unending hardship and obstacle, but a great way to fool the nervous system into facing it head on is to look for it. Life is the Stockholm Syndrome you make it. Choose adversity as your captor. Defend them with your life. This analogy is wearing thin, for sure, but if you look for adversity rather than remain fearful of it, you'll be able to face it more calmly and confidently. Fear negatively impacts judgment. That's a fact. Fear will impact your judgment. When you face the world fearfully, you make more mistakes. Everybody has fear, unless you're a psychopath, so compartmentalize. Have the fear. Label it as such. Tell it to eat a dick and identify the decision that serves you no matter how scary. And then pull the trigger. And then, you know, change your tact later. If you're still alive, you're doing fine. What is art? Stanislavski said feelings conveyed externally. Tolstoy, Tolstoy one of his... Uh, Friends, believed performers can affect the viewer, conveying communion. Community is what will save you, your cohort, your compatriots. The teacher is only one aspect of going to class. The other actors are the real reason. So don't waste a minute on shyness. Stanny introduced table work to his company. That was the first time. It was a radical idea, going through a play line by line, which I'm not totally into. I mean, I don't like all this paperwork. I like to act. I don't like being in my head thinking about stuff. It's called a play, after all. A play. It's not called a work. It, you play a role. You don't work a role. It's supposed to be fun, too, you know? Take it down a thousand on all the holier-than-thou reverence for the, for the words. In rehearsal, Stanny would move his actors away from the presentational to the real through repetition. This is tantamount to, an embra to embracing the boring. Get to boring right away. That's how you do it with Meisner. And you get through the repetition. Then you get to the exciting so quickly. This will tire out your great idea machine, aka your brain, that is often intent on mapping out how a scene should go. We don't want to map things out. We want to live them. Opening night of the first show at the Moscow Arts Theater, Stanislavski felt sick with fear. If the show failed, it would prove the naysayers right. He felt helpless. So he did what all helpless directors always do. He gave an inspirational speech. 
As the audience took their seats, he gathered the actors on stage behind the curtain in an effort to fill them with the confidence he lacked. He lied to them about the, their inevitable success. The orchestra struck up to play the overture, interrupting his exhortations. Frantic, unable to be heard, Stanny began to jump up and down, dancing his enthusiasm at the actors, shouting scraps of encouragement. One of the cast members finally saved him from himself. Uh, they said, Constantine, leave the stage at once and don't annoy the actors. That really spoke to me. That's exactly what I would have done. Then in 1904, their in-house playwright, Anton Chekhov, Anton Chekhov was just their in-house playwright, not bad, uh, he dies, leaving the newly founded Upstart Theater rudderless. Maxim Gorky also left the Moscow Art Theater. Wow, some... Some heavy hitters just hanging around. I love how everybody's friends. Um, after an argument with the co-founder, and he took the Matt's biggest funder with him. Wah, wah. The audiences weren't there. No one was showing up. They were losing money. New plays coupled with Stanislavski's realistic style did not equal packed houses because they needed time to educate their audience. Sometimes your audience won't know how great you are. You got to teach them. That takes time, too. In rehearsals, however, a revolution was occurring. Stanislavski's ethos on rehearsal was thus, and it was borrowed from France. It is called repetition. The meaning becomes clear through repeating it. In English, we use the word rehearsal, not repetition, which gets much closer to Stanislavski's ethos. To rehearse does not mean to repeat. It means to agitate, to disturb the soil so that what is planted there can grow. It's a bit more esoteric. As long as it's helpful, I think you can get there by both rehearsing and repeating. Uh, but Stanislavski, an overzeal like an overzealous gardener, ripped up what he planted the moment it took root in order to scatter seeds that he hoped would mature into something better. And that analogy is tantamount to kill your darlings, don't be precious about ideas or systems, kill everything, start over, try and start over. We can get into that wagon wheel rut of of routine behavioral patterns so quickly and then we just think oh no this is the way to do it yeah this is the only i got the best way we should always be suspicious of that and examining things and reminding ourselves be being kind to ourselves because it takes an exorbitant amount of energy to get ourselves out of that rut and back up onto uh, cruising altitude but that's where the love is that's where the joy is when you're learning when it's hard it should be hard, but it also should be fun. Fun is underrated. This, of course, uh, made his actors uncomfortable, resulting in work that lacked confidence. And this being a system in flux, they then stripped away everything and forced the actors to just be still. That's incredible. Like that they had the flexibility to go, okay, this isn't working. It's uh, making everybody have low self-esteem. Let's just go back to stillness. Like Larry Bird and the free throws. So they took this stillness on stage, and guess what they did? They unsettled the audience in the best way. Like, that reminds me of when I saw Ian Holmes in Pinter's The Homecoming at the Comedy decades ago in London. All of a sudden, somebody would just get up from a chair, but take a hundred times more time to get up from the chair than is normal. It was like an exercise in Alexander technique, if you've ever heard of that. 
For some reason, though, it made perfect sense when Ian Holmes just got up from a chair at like half speed or quarter speed or 16th speed. Also, Pinter was a maniac. The homecoming is about the prodigal son coming home with his new wife or fiance, and by the end of it, he leaves without her, and um, her father-in-law and her brothers-in-law are her pimps, and she's going to be a sex worker. That's the play. You got to see this stuff, you know? It's just weird as fuck out there. It's so good. The moving target that is the truth comes to mind here. We are not going for real life with our performances, after all. We're going for something bigger. That's why the English English language so often fails us when we speak about acting. It's so ephemeral, so imprecise, such a moving target. But whatever you do, whenever you get confused, go back to the North Star of what looks good to you. Film yourself. Watch yourself. Get over yourself. Adjust. We try, try, try. Try, adjust, try, adjust, try, adjust. You can't fail if you're making art, so don't worry about it. In reading this book on the beginnings of the method and how much work it was for Stanislavski and his group to start something new, I am reminded of the amount of energy it takes to build something. It's supposed to be hard. Life is suffering. If you're bored, you're doing it wrong. If you're having a hard time, then you're on the right path. These days, everybody's feelings matter, unfortunately. But feelings are nuts, you know? They're not good guides. Have the feelings, by all means. Don't define yourself by these things. Just try this, okay? Don't take my word for it. You can always go back to the way you were doing things before. If my way isn't an improvement, get a second opinion or a third. I'm not saying I know everything. I'm just saying that when I just have the feeling and then park it over here and then... um act in service to others, or just paste a fake smile on my face that reminds me to be like a human and not like a dick all the time, it's way better. It's way fucking better. Maybe you don't, maybe it doesn't uh, manifest as dickitude with you, as Michael Chabon calls it when he's talking about his kids, adolescent dickitude. I still suffer from that. Maybe Maybe you're not a dick. Maybe it comes out as victimhood. Have the victimhood. See it. Call it what it is. Be kind to yourself. Don't trash yourself. Just move it out of the way. Try something else. Stanislavski hired a literary advisor for the new studio lab in the form of his harshest public critic. How brilliant is that? Keep your enemies closer. How can we apply this sort of egoless human resourcing move to our lives? Well, get outside feedback from professionals on your self-tapes. Look for people that will tell you the truth. Listen to them without emotion. It's not going to come immediately. But try it. Use them for all they're worth without getting upset. They might not like everything you're doing. Great, but it's not about liking. You might not like everything you're doing. Who cares about I like it? Oh, I like that. I thought I was good. Uh, Yeah, okay, now, what about what can you do differently next time to increase your range? What can you do do differently next time to affect your scene partner, to serve your audience? Sometimes this feedback can come from your fellow community of actors, if they're around. Sometimes you'll have to pay for it from a coach or a teacher. You can also do it to yourself. You can give yourself notes. Watch yourself. Be, be, be honest. What is measured can be managed. I gotta grease this chair. There's so much in this house that needs greasing. Russians were a minority 
in Russia at this time, at the turn of the 20th century. There were over 100 ethnic groups speaking 146 languages. Tsar Nicholas russified the country through autocratic means. I think this is important to remember in this day and age where it has become a novel sport of late to dismiss 140 million people living in Putin's kleptocracy uh, and painting them with one broad stroke of the brush. A hundred years isn't a long time genealogically or socially. And what may seem foreign, an acting system, for example, is actually easily transportable to 1940s New York. So we're not that different. Yes, Sting, the Russians do love their children also. Just like Stanislavski was inspired by the acting styles of actresses named Duza and Sarah Bernhardt working in France and England. The method came from these evil Russians, is my point. How long have we luxuriated in the Russians being our number one villain? Are we not suspicious of such uh, homogeny of thought? The end of the 19th century was a terrible time to open an experimental theater in Moscow, but the Moscow Arts Theater came to be in 1898. There was a war, a general strike, and a touch of ethnic cleansing. The Tsar was at peak Tsarness, which put him on that existential expressway to a cold group death in Siberia a few years later. Oh, those Russians. This should be an invitation for us to make art, because art doesn't happen when things go well. The real stuff comes under stress. You need an authoritarian regime, an earthquake, a fire, economic hardship. So when when it inevitably comes, welcome it with open arms. We are at present here in 2024 in a golden age of adversity. Here's your sign. No one came to the new theater because Stanislavski and his gang were making political theater during a time of civic unrest. So audiences were actually afraid the authorities would attack the theater while they were inside. That's how afraid the decision makers are of art. The studio was shuttered after a year. Meanwhile, outside in real life, 13,000 people lay dead most of them Jews in pogroms. The Moscow Art Theater went on a European tour. They didn't know what would be waiting for them in Warsaw and Berlin. There was such unrest across Europe, they were told to not go out at night in Warsaw because of gangs of thugs roaming the streets. With this backdrop, the MAT brought their modern acting style to European audiences. People were entranced. The new style was not presentational, not mapped out physical gestures, but natural. Settings, wardrobe, and performance mirrored real life for the first time ever. There was a wave of realistic art crashing against the European shores. In plays from Ibsen and Strindberg, and theaters like the Theatre Libre in Paris, and in books by Emile Zola. In other words, modernism is nearly 150 years old. There is no need to reinvent the wheel either. We have countless examples of truthful, grounded performances all over the place. Go to YouTube, no less. They are all there. You don't have to search for it anymore. Watch the greats. Copy them over and over. Don't mimic. Just go to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jason Bryden. Hit the playlist, How the Greats Do It. Watch the greats. Copy the greats. This is just the beginning. 
Feel what it's like to try on other people's moves. Eventually, it will show you a path to your own moves. Stanislavski felt himself sinking into routine in his performance. There is a difference between playing naive and being it over and over, night after night. He found himself to be going through the motions. The more he performed his roles, the more he calcified. This is when truth will leave you. So, he started rehearsing by himself in front of a mirror. He gave himself notes by what he was able to measure. For him, he never stopped being a student of acting. When you read Stanislavski's writing, they are indeed confusing, as many others have pointed out. This may be partly translation, but it's also because he was obsessively pedagogical. In the worst way. He, he was more mansplainy lecturer than a good seminar leader. He was also a, a, obsessively pedantic, which to me always signifies a big brain and an even bigger ego. But more than anything, talking about performance is ineffable, inexpressible. To me, that's why all acting books fall down. The book on acting I'm writing is not about acting at all. It's about confidence. Stay loose, stay present, and listen to your scene partner, and you're more than halfway there. The parts of the mind that lack conscious will is the place where Stanislavski suggested inspiration finds purchase. Then, as a theater practitioner, he creates an environment for that inspiration to strike night after night. Okay, the two problems with this is that some days you're acting opposite a tennis ball on the end of a C-stand. We can't always have set decks standing by. The other problem is inspiration is something to be suspicious of. It's fleeting. You can't count on it. Mastery comes from putting in the work. It isn't always going to be exciting. That's why they say it's 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. The spoils go to the ones that are willing to persevere. Have you ever had a great idea? And it feels so good when that light bulb goes off. And you write it down excitedly. And then, and then in the cold, sober light of day, you read it again and think, that's not that great, actually. The world is filled with great ideas. They're a dime a dozen. What separates is the work that goes into it. The work is all. Inspiration won't carry you. Work will. Stanislavski was all about the actor's own life experiences. Painters have to paint, he said. Writers have words, actors have their lives. The trick lay in figuring out how to mine these and use them in performance night after night. After all, art is not a reproduction of real life. Art, including theater, edits and compresses experience. That process and the artist's attention to experience becomes pressurized until it is dense with meaning. A painting has a frame. It only shows us what is inside the frame. In it, we behold wonders. In Hamlet, we don't see him studying for his midterms or making himself a salad or, in most productions, using the bathroom. We see him in moments of intensity, contemplating his father's death realizing his best friends betrayed him, breaking up with his girlfriend, trying to find the truth. That's what performance is. It, it's not real life. It's not all the drudgery. It's high stakes. 
You could argue that these are everyday and commonplace moments in someone's life. You have a father that's going to die. I have one. I am a father. I'm going to die. This stuff happens all the time. But it is within art that we view these moments with higher stakes. We start this process by being the bearer of strong opinions. We choose a meaningful life. And a part of that is choosing to be intense and to apply meaning to our performance. we got to make that choice. We act in spite of fear. We are natural risk-takers because we inherently know life is short. High stakes are all around us. For example, when you are with your partner, you're trying to affect them, your life partner. You're not just having a normal everyday conversation. You're trying to change the air between you. You need something. Notice these needs. This is why Stanislavski talks about actors being at the ready to draw upon their life experience, to feel the real, heavy, deep stuff, rather than going through the motions. Now, good old Stanny goes on to talk about chunking. Uh, My word, not his. If a role is impossible to own at once, then the actor must put it together bit by bit. If Hamlet's too much for you wholesale, then break down the role into bits and focus on each of these as truthfully as possible. The creative process could also be broken down and then put back together to give the actor a system they could use over and over again. What does truth mean? Well, to me it means, in short, don't get caught acting. Film yourself. Watch yourself well before you know the lines. Keep watching. Notice the things you do. Are you acting? Are you doing something clever with your eyebrows? Just get rid of it. You don't have to beat yourself up over it. Just stop doing it. Go back to the stillness. See if it looks wooden. If it does look wooden, then stop being wooden. But do all these systems and this adherence to, you know, step by steps, does it put the actor in their head? Why not stop thinking so much and just start listening? For years, there will always be mysteries, secret lexicons brought to you by mentors come gurus. We must eschew all distraction and focus on our scene partner. Yoga and its concentration exercises were brought to Stanislavski by his buddy Tolstoy, and the idea of prana, the invisible life force that is in all of us, that's a thing. You know when people say, oh, she has it, she's got it, she, they have it, he has it. Yeah, that's what, they're call- that's what they're talking about back then. Prana, that life force we all have. Some people can shine it, shoot it through their eyeballs. I love how everybody's hanging out together. Chekhov, Tolstoy, Meyerhold. Where's where's my Stanislavski? Hello? Where's my Gogol? I've got a Dave, I've got a Mo, I've got a Sath, Haji, pretty good. Chris, pretty good. Jenny, Jen, Chrissy. I've got a lot of friends. I don't have a Gogol. Where was I? Dividing the role into bits means the actor can stay present. Focus on the immediate and you can stay in the scene. Like anything else, concentration can be practiced through repetition. And of course, I'm not talking about ADHD right now. Yoinks. Attention is not enough. Actors need imagination also. The magic if is a state of radical acceptance of the present yet imagined circumstances. Sounds good, right? A suspension of disbelief. If these circumstances were actually true, how would I behave? But we know this already. We know how to make, make believe. We do it all the time now. We're savvy. 
were post-method. These crazy Russians were responding to hundreds of years of obsolete intel. We don't know Victorian act- acting styles. We don't know Commedia dell'arte. We don't know vaudeville. We are post all of this. We are on the other side of this particular preciousness. Effective memory. This is another thing of his. Baffling and controversial, so saith um, Isaac Butler, the author. Replicate rhythm of feelings, coming from French dudes, uh, where they called it diseases of memory. Really, I think what Stanny was talking about with effective memory is it's like muscle memory, but for the memory. So it's memory, memory. Vestigial feelings. New experiences calling up older ones, like how the smell of toast makes you think of when your dad used to beat you up. Just for example. I don't know why I said that. Effective memory is, one, you can call upon emotions without consciously doing so. And two, purposeful provocation of emotions, self-triggering. That's hard, but that's good. You can see why this is controversial. Acting teachers by the thousands, the reams, have been charging actors good money for them to come to a class where everyone ends up running around like animals or sizzling on the floor like bacon. The intention is good, or was years ago. You know, the real point of these exercises isn't wanking off, but the encouragement, or should be, the encouragement of getting out of one's head. Man, you really have to see that one Arbutus in amongst the forest of evergreens to find the lessons sometimes in here. Motivation. Stanny also was the first to come up with this. Wow, he did come up with a lot. Gogol wrote in his play, The Inspector General, actors should have a reason why they are doing what they're doing. Playwrights are always trying to direct actors on the sly, hey? You've really got to watch them sneaky devils. But motivation, not taken for granted, was a novel concept back then. What are you doing and why are you doing it? You just got to figure that out. It's not complicated. Stanny calls this the super task, but of course he has to make it complicated. He's got to give it his own lingo. And this follows with a long and unnecessarily complex definition. Really what it is, is know why your character is doing something. What helps me achieve this, me, JB, without getting too um, thinky about it, is framing it like this. What's your intention and can you make it truly yours? Go with your fourth idea. Repeat, repeat, repeat. Find new stuff that is still you, but different from everyone else. Don't just do the thing that everyone else is doing. Words of convenience and how I'm so easily annoyed. You know how we say caveat all the time now, even though we don't know what it means? There was a time when we never did, but now we say it all the time. It means it's, there's a legal warning about. Yeah, I'm giving you a legal warning uh, that, you're, that you're wrong le- legally. Of course, we use it for every other as an excuse, as an exception, as a... We overuse awesome, we overuse the word like, at the end of the day used to be the bottom line, gifting used to be giving, irregardless used to be just regardless, Uber used to be taxis, things change, I get it, but it's still annoying. The point is we practice sameness day in and day out. In our endless desire to fit in and have friends and not be ostracized from the village, we act, dress, and speak like everyone else. 
This works out in real life, I guess, fine, you know, but it doesn't work in performance. You want to do the opposite in your self-tapes. That's an easy way to get away from selfness. Go for the opposite side of the coin. See what's there. Because you got to stand out. You don't want to blend in. You got to act without fear. Not without it, but in spite of it. You want to be as much of you as possible that you can fit into that 16 by 9 frame. Psychological realism was now a real thing. Stanny had created the system that would later be called the method. In Russian, it was called Perezhevenia. Perezhevenia? Perezhevenia? It all sounds like Borat to me. Greatest movie ever. Defined as a psychological formation of personality. The unit formed in personality as a result of the social influence that cannot be taken in its absolute attributes. And here, Jesus. And herein lies the trouble with teaching acting, you know? He's, he's making it complicated again with a lot of $10 words. Like that last sentence barely makes sense. Social influence that cannot be taken in its absolute attributes. Blah, 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 blah. It's just experiencing in public. Phone! That was Frank from the Union. Seems like a nice fella. We're going to go for coffee next week. To experience, genuinely, over and over again, while on a stage or in front of a camera, what's the big deal? I don't mean to be flippant. Maybe it is a big deal. But what I've learned is being a student of act of being a student of acting for 30 years and not a very good actor for many of those years is that if I had one thing that I could go back in time and tell my younger self, that thing would be everybody is racing their own race. You'll get there eventually. You'll get somewhere eventually if you keep going. Who's to say that even the greatest teacher would have gotten through to me in my 20s? Great teachers are great as long as you are ready to hear them. I say, along with your spoonful of learning, take an equally large spoonful of kindness. If you're into this, you'll find your way to knowledge, to affecting your scene partner, and eliciting a response from your audience. It just takes a lot longer than anyone wants. Stanny was right about one thing for sure, and that is the actor does not become the character. This would be madness. I had a student recently ask me about disappearing into a role. You don't want to do that. You don't want to invite schizophrenia. You want to remain the responsible actor that can show up on time with their lines memorized. You don't want to pull a Shia LaBeouf or an Ezra Miller. It's too stressful. It's too intense for everyone around you. It's too much. People don't like it. Don't burn too brightly. It's not sustainable. You want to be the calm, cool, collective pro in the corner that comes out ready for a knife fight. Take after take after take, just like Francis McDormand figured out back in the 1980s. Being directed by a young man with big hair and glasses named Joel, who would later become her husband in a movie called Blood Simple. And that's the end of part one on The Method by Isaac Butler. Holy shit, this is a long book. I wish people would write less. I like short books. Anyways, for more information on classes, go to boldacting.com slash classes. See how that works? Email me directly at jasonbryden at gmail.com or find me on Instagram. I am Jason Bryden of Canada.
and we'll see you next time on the Bold Acting Podcast.